is it you haven't seen the god song psycho? Bro, you have seen Taxi Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. I am Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights, and today my guest is Nolan from Your Face. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, why don't you go ahead and take a quick minute to introduce yourself a little bit more to anybody that, that might not be familiar with Your Face? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Nolan! And uh, I am one of the trio of power that runs Your Face, which you can find at www.yourfaceisa.com. It's a, it's a movie site. Your Face is a movie site uh, that uh, I run with Jason Soto and Nick Job. Uh, I've been going for a good year and a half now, and we cover a full gamut of movie stuff. Um, I am also the co-host of The Layer of the Unwanted, the greatest uh, almost Lammy-nominated podcast in the uh, Lamb Podcast Network. Uh, I also do that with uh, Jason Soto, where we take on all manner of bad, bad movies. And uh, that's we're into our fifth year of doing that, and that's been pretty fantastic. So things for you to go uh, check out when you have a chance. Yeah, and and I'm a regular list, listener of the uh, the Lair of the Unwanted, and it's always a a fun time. And and I'm glad to uh, to finally get the last member of your face on my show because uh, both Jason and Nick have been on uh, FilmWise here a couple different times. Yes, I tend to be the most elusive one, but thank you. I'm I'm psyched to be on the show. All right, and as always, I have some uh, questions for you to get to know your movie tastes a little bit better. So what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? Uh, three movies would be uh, – first. the first one would be the greatest film of the 21st century in my opinion so far, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, that movie is just amazing from top to bottom, um, and I just love the way it's written and structured. I could watch that over and over and over and over. Absolutely love it. Uh, second film would be the film that I consider the gold standard of bad movies. It is not one of the most famously bad, bad movies. While I have lots of love for such films as Plan 9 from Outer Space and Troll 2 and and um, The Room and such, my all-time favorite bad movie that's the bad movie that got me into reviewing bad movies is a film called Death Stalker 2. Have you ever had the privilege? No, I, I, I haven't uh... – heard of that one I, it, I think i've i've maybe vaguely heard the title but i don't know anything about it it's um on the surface it's it's one of those like sword and sorcery kind of films um with you know that's like starring some penthouse pet <laughs> and uh Except they made the decision, and I don't know if it was an acting decision or if the director did it or they just decided the hell with this. Excuse me. They, um, the main character who plays uh, the title role, Deathstalker, uh, is so like flippant and so nonchalant through the whole film. He really plays it like, uh, like the like the smirking wise ass in in the back of like your shop class or whatever. <laughs> he just kind of he's really like no attempt. Everyone else is all like, oh, where thou thou, blah 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 blah, and he's just no attempt at it. He's just kind of smirking his way through the whole film. Um, it's really, uh, it's really kind of hysterical the way that they're just so cheeky about the whole thing. And, uh, <laughs> um, I just, I just love that film to bits. And then the third film I never get tired of is a film we'll be talking about a little later, The Big Lebowski. Nice. Yeah. I, I know that's, that's a favorite of, of many people. And, um, I know it's like one of the most accessible Coen Brothers film next to Oh Brother Where Art Thou, but it's just one of those that I, I hadn't gotten around to see until now. But uh, like you mentioned, we'll, we'll be talking about that more a little bit later. Um, so what is your favorite movie that you've only seen once? Uh, see, that's a that's a tough one because mm -hmm. I, I'm very much a, a movie guy more than a TV guy. Like I really don't watch much TV because I'm just watching lots of movies. So if I find a movie I really love, it's rare for me to only see it once. I will track it down. I'll 
catch it when it comes on like instant watch on Netflix or, or whatever. Uh, so the, my favorite film I've only seen once is Roadhouse. Um, watched Roadhouse once for, uh, it was one of those things where I was going, wanted to review it anyway, and we ended up reviewing it on, um, The Layer of the Unwanted, and I loved it, and I ran out and bought a copy, and I just haven't had a chance to, uh, revisit it. Yeah, I, I've, one thing I remember about that movie is, uh, I, I, uh, rented that, and I watched it specifically because Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier do a commentary on the special edition. <laughs> I wish I had that version. I, I don't. Yeah, it, it's it's really funny. I, I mean, they, it's not really in depth. It's it's most they spend most of the time making Chuck Norris jokes, only replacing um, Dalton. <laughs> but it, it's it's really fun. If if you ever get the chance, like maybe uh, I don't know if you can find the isolated audio somewhere online or. If you can find the the special edition copy, it's it's a fun listen. And like I, so I I've seen I've actually seen that movie twice because I did decide to go ahead and watch it uh, watch it cold before watching it with the commentary. I, although I was tempted to to watch it first with the commentary. Well, I, yeah, I think you got to see the movie first before you mm-hmm. dig into the commentary because then you're you gotta you gotta experience it in its in its pure form first. But um, right, yeah, I'll have to check out that commentary that. I've heard other commentary that they've done for for a lot of. Now, granted, it was their own films, their yeah, like mall rats uh, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, he also did one um, with uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but uh, the director of Donnie Darko. Interesting for for Donnie Darko yeah, or Donnie Darko. Okay, wild. And that was kind of neat. Yeah, and and I also think that the story behind them doing the Roadhouse commentary is kind of funny too. I. I I'm going to take a quick moment to, to, to mention that just just because I I can. Uh, but I, when they did the 10th anniversary DVD of Clerks, the the Clerks X edition, the the three disc one, they have like all their of course intros where they just ramble on and uh, in the intro for the movie for the DVD, then the Clerks X edition, they go on this like five to ten minute tangents talking about Roadhouse. And so the um, the studio behind Roadhouse was getting was putting together a special edition DVD, and they caught wind of this of uh, of them talking about Roadhouse, and so they invited Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier to come do the the commentary for the special edition. Awesome. <laughs> I think that kind of thing probably happens more often than you might think. I feel like there's a lot of people who have done commentaries for films that you just wouldn't have expected but um that's that's definitely worth tracking down yeah Very yeah cool. I, I would agree with that um and I, of course i ask everybody what is your favorite superhero movie uh, i i'm on the fence of whether this is my favorite or what i think is the best superhero movie that i've seen uh either way i'm gonna have to go with the incredibles mm. Um, probably, I don't know if that's going to be considered a controversial choice or not. I, I feel like they do everything right and they do it without the aid of like existing, like an existing property. Right. And maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that was part of the key. That yeah. It, even feel... though they do borrow some from, well, they borrow stuff from a lot of superhero past, but oh, sure. uh, I know when they came out, the, specifically, they, they were kind of called out for borrowing heavily from the Fantastic Four. I had even heard, and you probably heard this too, I had even heard that not only had they, you know, obviously the Fantastic Four is a major pattern for this, but when this movie came out, the Fantastic, the first, like that Fantastic, the first big budget mm-hmm. Fantastic Four was in production, and they actually rewrote chunks of the script right. based on what they saw in The Incredibles, and they were like, oh, damn, oh, damn, yeah, we got to <laughs> do stuff like, like you know. Um, it really kind of kind of changed their, some of their thinking. Yeah, I, I heard about that as well. Although I heard that it was like the the stuff that they were doing in the Fantastic Four was very similar to what happened in the Incredibles. So they had um, they felt they had to change it so it didn't look like they were copying the Incredibles. Ah, uh, okay. Um, maybe I don't. I have to wonder though, because um, it just occurred to me, if that's part of its that they didn't feel part of its successes. They didn't feel obliged to throw in these like a lot of Easter eggs and nods and stuff to like the comics. They could just kind of tell their story, right? You yeah, know? aren't beholden to anything like right. a lot of uh, recent stuff is. 
So yeah, but yeah, that's uh, the Incredibles is, is one of my top ten for sure. It's it's an excellent movie all around. All right. Um. So if if you were to write um like say an, a column for your face that focused on a narrow niche of movies like a superhero say or, or like a specific subgenre of horror um what would that niche be Um and and this this question was a, a nice softball for me because I already do this uh, you know already and actually do two versions of it now um right out of the gate when I first started uh writing doing movie reviews and stuff I made a point of of focusing on what I called and at the time I had my own site it was the bargain bin review mm-hmm. and you know the, the tag for it was like reviewing the films no one else will touch and it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily any specific genre it was just kind of like those those films that everybody kind of ignores or forgets about, but actually takes up a significant portion of the of the film industry. It's like a lot of the straight to video or straight to DVD kind of. Or nowadays, it would be like right to uh, like um, the direct access, you know, mm-hmm. kind of skipping the main theater um, in knockoff films, B movies, uh, cult film, you know, that kind of any any films that kind of fit into that into that section. Um, and then I'd say uh, about a year ago or so, I decided to start a, a second column, which I call uh, Modern Cult Classics. I actually got the idea, the idea from a, a column on uh, on the AV Club that I loved, um, and which they discontinued. And it was so I'm kind of picking up the banner for that. And it's basically looking at kind of well, it's basically modern cult movies. And I'm defining modern as anything that came out during my lifetime which is probably longer than the average blogger. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but still, I mean, that's enough to kind of cap it off. So um, and just kind of just kind of digging into some of some of those films as well. Um, so that's been uh, those those are my two kind of niches. And sometimes they very much overlap, um, but that's OK. Yeah, I, there's definitely a lot of. Um, low budget. It, in fact, it's almost a, a requirement that uh, a modern cult classic is a uh, tends to be a, a low budget, um, overlooked movie. Although there there are a handful of uh, higher budget movies that sneak in there. Like I, I would I would probably consider Scott Pilgrim to be like a a modern cult classic almost. Oh, I I absolutely would. The way and I actually took the time because I had read a book about um. I occasionally did a been lately I've been doing the occasional book review too because why not it's my you know it's my data post and I'll write what I want thank you you know yeah <laughs> but, I've, um, I've done a couple book reviews yeah. myself surprisingly yeah and it's uh I'm not surprised <laughs> uh, I suppose no if if it fits within the kind of genre or scope of of what you write about it absolutely makes sense uh, this book was about it was like 500 you must see cult films. And it included films like Star Wars. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, so so it kind of launched me into this big piece of like what makes a cult film. Mm. And then I'm like, well, and I am writing a column called Modern Cult Classic, so I damn well better nail this one down. And like, what do I – so I'm just kind of – the way I'm seeing it is like, you know, budget be damned. It's a film that was overlooked and ignored upon its initial release, if it had one but then gained a following over time. So I would I would say Scott Pilgrim definitely fits in there because it kind of it kind of came and went like yeah, it got it got really good reviews if I remember right when it mm-hmm. hit the theater, but I don't think it did all that well and but it's it's kind of popularity has certainly grown over the years and we could I'm sure we could both rattle off uh, a ton of films. Uh I would certainly absolutely count the Big Lebowski in there and um I would count the other film we're going to talk about today in there too. Yeah. I would so. which is Flash Gordon to uh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think it's funny. I've, I've mentioned this before, but uh, it was Jay Cluett that pointed out that if anybody's listening to this, I, I do put the, the titles of the two movies in the title of the podcast. So if, they are, if they're downloading it, then they uh, know what two movies we're talking about. Awesome. All right. And uh, my last question for you is what is your current biggest film wise, a, a film that you haven't seen yet that that you feel like you probably should have by now? Uh, I certainly have a handful. I think just about everyone does. Um, I'd say if I could 
scope it down to three. I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. Um, I haven't seen Sunset Boulevard. I think that's the one I'm most interested in. Um, but the one I'm probably most shame-faced about is Dr. Javaro, only because it's my father's favorite film. Mm. Um, and just haven't had a chance to, when I get together with my folks, and be like, hey, we haven't seen each other in, you know, uh, like two months. Let's sit down for three some three plus hours and watch a movie. <laughs> so, um, um, so I guess I guess the, the the official answer to your question would be Dr. Javaro. Mm. Yeah, I, I I can definitely see that. Uh, I I know that uh, Sunset Boulevard was it actually going back. It was my second episode of this, and and that's a that's an excellent movie as well. If you get around to that one, I, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they all are. Uh, just yeah. you know, only <laughs> so many hours in the day, and right, you know, and those bad movies the won't power, watch themselves. The movies, yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for uh, and uh, giving me those uh, answers and getting to know a little bit more about your movie tastes. And that brings us to the movie that you had me watch for the first time, The Big Lebowski. You like sex? I like to play with things a while. Playing one side against the other in bed with everybody. I received this ransom note this morning. Who can save you now? Okay, so The Big Lebowski is a Coen Brothers film for those of you who haven't seen it and and maybe regardless of whether or not you've seen it, knowing it's a Coen Brothers film will will say a whole lot about it. Um, I'll quickly recap the plot, though it feels like this isn't the kind of film where plot is a major piece of it. Yeah. Uh, but it does play into something that I really love about this film. Uh, it takes place in uh, the early, like late '80s, early '90s, around the time of the the first Iraq War, mm-hmm. and uh, we focus on this slack. We're in Los Angeles. We focus on this slacker called uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, but everyone calls him the Dude. Um, early in the film, a uh, bunch of guys bust into his place and they rough him up and they're demanding money and they pee on his rug. <laughs> Turns out that it was a case of mistaken identity. The the ruffians were supposed to uh, go after a different Jeffrey Lebowski and get his money. So through that, the dude gets hooked into this twisty, turny kind of of mystery that you would have the type of mystery that kind of meanders and twists and turns all over the place like uh like an old 50s noir film that would have starred humphrey bogart you know um something akin to like the maltese falcon or something like that um and uh but the the kind of the the big the big concept of it is that you've got this mystery with these twists and turns and of course the the obligatory like getting knocked out and trippy because he's been drugged dream sequence and stuff but the the mystery is is being investigated by a guy who is thoroughly and completely unqualified to do so <laughs> Um, to say and, the least. Yes. But he still kind of works his way through it. We meet a whole variety of interesting Coen Brothers style characters and, and we do get uh you know some resolution to the to the mystery at the end. So um I don't know if that's considered a spoiler or not. Spoiler, they they solve the mystery. <laughs> um that I think that is a is as much of a, a kind of a recap as I want to give on this. Uh, what what did you think? I was excited that well, not excited that you hadn't seen it. But <laughs> excited to be the one to show this to you, to introduce me to, to the introduce movie. it to you. And um, what did you think? Well, um, before watching this movie, I I knew about its status as a cult classic, but I I didn't realize it until I started watching the movie that I knew, like, really absolutely nothing about the plot. I I knew that there was a lot of uh, bowling involved. I I knew a lot about the dude's personality, but I had no idea about the the whole mystery plot. And and I I had seen, like, a a clip, uh, one of Walter's clips. Um before seeing this, but aside from that, I I literally had no idea about the, the whole kidnapping mystery uh, aspect of the movie, and and that was a, a bit of a trip, and and I I've, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's this would be my 
fourth Coen Brothers movie, I believe. Uh, I'm a big fan of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I've seen that many times. Uh, I watched Fargo um, a few months back for an early episode, which uh, well, that one, whenever I first watched it, I, I was kind of lukewarm on it, but as I got into discussing it, it, it really helped improve the film for me, um, talking about it. And, and I'd seen Raising Arizona, like whenever I was really young. So I, I don't really remember anything about Raising Arizona anymore. But, but yeah, that I could definitely tell that this was a Coen Brothers movie and, and not just because of the cast, which, uh, seeing, um, uh, Oh, I can't. John Goodman. Yeah. Uh, John Steve Goodman, Buscemi. Steve Buscemi, John Turturro. Sir um, Stormare. Yep. Uh, so. Just seeing all those, it's like, yeah, this is definitely a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, and uh, aside from that, like a lot of the, the visual stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad that you liked it because there's always the, especially, and this is a, this is exactly the kind of film where there's always the worry that it's, it's over the years because it's certainly it's it's absolutely a cult film, it, you know. And, and just as we were talking about before, it came and went in a theater, and nobody even like it really just kind of right through, and no one noticed. But it's it is snowballed to such a following. Uh, to the point where I kid you not, like there's a there's an established religion about it, <laughs> like based on like it's like the dudeism or something like that. Uh, there's an annual festival. Um, it really uh, it really has snowballed to the point where I was almost a little worried, like so, you know that the hype kind of overshadows it. And that might have if you were if you were aware of like all the hype around it that you might watch it you know and be kind of underwhelmed on your first viewing. Um, it's certainly a film that I don't know that I loved the first time I saw it. I thought it was pretty neat, and then like the second time I saw it, I started laughing at part. You start catching things. There's a lot of small small things in this film, um, little things like the. And which kind of goes back to the writing. It's a lot of the stuff I loved about Shaun of the Dead that we talked about before. Um, there's very little the dude says that wasn't he did, that wasn't said to him earlier, or he heard on like a TV or something. I mean, there's he's kind of just kind of regurgitating stuff that people say. Um, lots of little lots of little quirks like that uh, running through the film um, as he just kind of stumbles around, kind of. You know, soaked in in white Russians, and <laughs> you know, tries to figure stuff out. So, yeah, and then, like that's just such an interesting choice of a drink. That I mean, that who would think that um, if you have your choice of of any sort of drink, you go for a white Russian, and and that's kind of your seems to be his mainstay. I I was looking up trivia after watching this, and uh, he drinks a total of like nine white Russians throughout the the course of the movie. I'd be curious. There's one or two that get spilled on him, like he goes to drink it and it gets knocked out of his hand or whatever, and he's all like, "There's a beverage here, man." You know, <laughs> uh, kind of. I wonder if that includes those or not. Yeah, I know, uh, uh, it said that there was there's one that that he spills whenever he gets drugged but the one where he gets knocked around he actually i think he saves that one <laughs> so um awesome uh yeah it's uh and actually i um i now whenever i go bowling i get a white russian <laughs> <laughs> just on principle um there's uh so there's a lot in the writing and the humor that um that I just to kind of just to reiterate that I find stellar. Um, just a lot of the the way that the bickering and the uh, the banter between uh, the dude and Walter, who we mentioned earlier, played by John Goodman, who is this completely post traumatic stressed Vietnam vet. You know, that's his, like his mm -hmm. best best friend, and Steve Buscemi. A way their their kind of their dialogue intertwines and kind of careens all over the place. Um, there's a, a scene where the scene where the dude meets uh, the daughter of the other Lebowski, uh, played by Julianne Moore, as this like avant-garde, uh, Artist. pretentious artiste, is yeah. probably my favorite film in all of of all uh, favorite scene in all of film, where she he comes in and she's like 
flying through the air, strapped, like, naked, strapped to this harness, splattering paint everywhere. And she's explaining things, and she, she, you know, that she, you know, talking about how she doubts that uh, it's a kidnapping that he's looking into, that uh, that the woman was even kidnapped, and she puts in a, a porno film that she <laughs> starred in called Log Jammin. Fun fact: also the name of my fantasy baseball team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and they show this scene as this completely cheesy scene, and the guy comes in, he's like, I'm yeah. here. To, and it's, <laughs> like, and it's Peter Stormare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He comes in with his ridiculous accent. He's like, I'm here to fix the cable. And <laughs> the girl, the other girl comes out, and she's naked, and she's like, oh, who's he? Who's he here to fix the cable? And she turns to the dude and says, you can imagine where it goes from here. And the dude, without missing a beat, goes, he fixes the cable? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely love it. Um so yeah, there's uh you know, and we're just if if we're if we're kind of skirting the nuts and bolts of the plot, it's I think because it really doesn't matter like it matters, but it drives the action forward, but it really kind of careens into this kind of more to this universe and there's there's nihilists and the car thieves and a severed toe and a bag full of dirty underwear. I mean it's just um you know, it, it kind of goes all over the place. Yeah, and there's the uh, there's the uh, Hugh Hefner like porn porn guy yep. that uh, that produced that log hammer uh, log hammer. Yeah, and there's um, also um, and also the uh, the trophy wife. She has a private detective that her family hired that's been following him. So, um, so and yeah, then, this is. Uh, I, I'm I'm excited that you really enjoyed this. Did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, wanted to add about this? Well, and and the other thing about this movie is like all all the visuals. It's uh, I mean, like I, I think one of the the fun aspects I liked about this movie is just the state of his car as it goes throughout the movie. <laughs> Like it, it starts out not in the best condition, and it just keeps going downhill from there. Like yeah. they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, um, when they're doing the trade-off, uh, he runs into a pole, and then it gets stolen. Yep, it gets peed in. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I I like the the way the cop acts during that. He's like um, either a. Uh, a vagrant um, came and slept in this, or they just used it as a toilet and moved on. <laughs> so awesome! And then, uh, whenever they find the the uh, joyriding freshman, and uh, Walter like, gets off. Was he like flunking tenth? He's like flunking tenth grade <laughs> history or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, and, and his <laughs> and the kid's father is in an iron lung in the. Uh, in the living room, and he's this this writer of an actual TV series, even though he's like the name wasn't the name of an, an actual writer. And I think they they mentioned that uh, that it's like a long running series, but actually the the series they mentioned is was like a short lived series. Oh, <laughs> but, I just assumed it was a fictional series. I never even looked it up. It's it's some it sounds like some kind of fifties western kind of if I remember right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. uh, oh, and then all the windows get broken out, of course, and then finally get set on fire. <laughs> it's like they, that's it. They finally killed the car. <laughs> um, this is uh, another thing. It kind of ties into the writing. It is an eminently quotable film. Um, and in fact, if you've ever seen uh, any number of episodes of Veronica Mars, they quote from that early and often. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the second season, there you can't go more than three episodes without a really blatant, obvious um, reference to to the Big Lebowski. It's good stuff. Yeah, that, that's a series that I'm I'm sure I would like, but I haven't gotten around to. I just kind of missed it whenever it came out, and haven't gotten gotten back to it. Yeah, yeah, I I had done the same. I revisited because the movie was coming out, and I figured, why not? Uh, let me rephrase that. I revisited because the movie was coming out, and I had forgotten to cancel my Amazon Prime that I got over the holidays for the shipping, <laughs> and then realized that the series was on Amazon Prime. And I'm like, all right, well then the movie's coming out, so why not? So um, that was good yeah. stuff. 
Um, I'm trying to think other things about the uh, – I was fortunate enough. I, I had spent a year living in L.A., and um, I actually went bowling in the bowling alley where where uh, the film takes uh, – a number of scenes of the film takes place. I would say where they go bowling, you never see the dude actually bowl. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I um, read that in the trivia. He's the, he's the only one in, on the – of their three-man team that you never actually see throw the ball down the lane. <laughs> so um, I was able to, uh, with a buddy, we went and we got white Russians and we went bowling. Mm-hmm. Sadly, uh, the place has been torn down since. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and and uh, like I've I really enjoyed like even though he did, he's not given a whole lot to do, but uh, Steve Buscemi's character is really fun. Like he's always uh, throwing the strikes, uh, except that his last throw, he only knocks him down nine pins, and yeah. and he's always being told to shut up. Comes <laughs> keeps coming in during the middle of their conversation, not knowing what's exactly what they're talking about. I thought that was a fun. I thought it was a, especially at the time he was becoming really, really kind of popular and well known for particularly for playing motor mouths like the the character he had in Fargo and Mr. Pink, where he was these like you really hyperactive motor mouthy kind of guys. So I thought it was a really nice kind of uh, kind of change for him to to have him be the one that's like barely getting a word out and is always told to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Sorry if I just put you with the. Uh, <laughs> You can bleep that out. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. that's all right. Um, yeah, and and there is a, a lot of that in the in the movie too. And, and the other thing that's fun, which which also does happen in a lot of other Coen Brothers movies, is just seeing all the different people that pop up, uh, all the different like character actors. Um, like uh, <laughs> one name that that jumped out at me, which I think I'm probably one of maybe half a dozen people who's it was like, oh, that person's in this movie. Um, whenever I saw Flea's name pop up. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's in there. Uh, John Tutoro, who we I think we mentioned earlier as a kind of Coen Brothers regular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's kind of like I almost. This is what I mean by it. In some ways, the plot doesn't really matter. Like his character has nothing to do with anything. No, it's, and it's, he's it's in like absolutely no. Like if you took him out of the the movie, it would impact the plot by zero percent. Yeah, and he's he's in like two scenes. I think he's in. Is he is he in two scenes? He's or maybe just the one. But um, it's awesome as like the Jesus. He's like the rival <laughs> bowler, and he gets the whole like uh Spanish version of Hotel California, and he's he's just absolutely oily and ridiculous. And, <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah he's got like the one long fingernail that's painted and uh yeah he's he's such a fun character too and like everyone's such a just such a fun and bizarre character like the the private detective and in, in the little rundown volkswagen beetle that keeps following him around yep you know and and the one character that we haven't see those are the moments that i think really those are the things that really make the film the one that we haven't talked about is uh sam elliott Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and, narrator. And, like, and immediately, like whenever he starts narrating near the beginning, it's like that's got to be Sam Elliott because mm-hmm. he has just such the distinctive voice. And then whenever he pops up, it's like such a a weird dreamlike moment. It's like you're not sure if he's real because um, Walter and uh, Steve Buscemi are are sitting there, and then they leave, and then the camera pans so it. It's just um, the dude uh, on the side of the frame, and then whenever the camera pans back, Sam Elliott's sitting there in full cowboy getup. Yep, <laughs> looking for a good sarsaparilla. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he just starts talking to the dude like he knows him, like he's known him forever. And then of course it, it ends with him talking to the camera and breaking the fourth wall, which which is which I was fine with because you know it opens with his narrate him doing narration mm-hmm. and such. So. Uh... Yeah, there's 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 a lot a lot to love about this film. Um, yeah, and and one thing I always thought I, I thought was like uh, just a, a little thing that that I caught is how they they don't name the animals correctly. Like uh, um, Walter is taking care of his ex-wife's pomeranian. It's a, like as soon as it walks out of the cage, I, I think my first thought was that is not a pomeranian. No. 
<laughs> I never caught that. That's uh, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a dog person, so I'm just yeah, like, I'm no, not it's exactly dog, what you know? what dog it is, but uh, I I know it's not a Pomeranian because uh, um, like my one of my obscure relatives used to have a Pomeranian. It's the ones that are like really big and fluffy and like orange, and they have like a curly tail. Okay. And they tend to like bark constantly. And then the other thing I noticed is uh, the the Germans, whenever they walk in, they have a ferret, and uh, Lebowski refers to it as a marmot. Yep. <laughs> so uh, the one thing that I'm wondering, and let's see what you think. This is this has become such a such a big following for this movie, and such an iconic character. I kind of feel like it. Kind of, I almost wonder if it if it kind of just chases Jeff Bridges around. I mean, this is, I feel like, because he, it, Jeff Bridges plays the dude. I don't think we <laughs> ever stated that. Um, you know, here's a guy who's been acting professionally and steadily since like 1969 and even won Best Actor a few years ago. And this is the, this is the role he'll forever be associated with. You know, this is his Ben Kenobi. Yeah, <laughs> so even is, though, uh, like, even even though I probably best known him from uh, Tron and Tron Legacy. But yeah, even like even me, I've I know that the legacy of the dude follows him around. And yeah, I haven't seen the movie until now. And it's and it's hard for me to I know for just for me, it's hard for me to watch him in other roles and not think of the dude. And I almost wonder, you know, sometimes I think he probably they pick roles or they make the the decision in those films to like let that kind of influence play along. Even like films that were made like completely irrelevant, like Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, you know? I was actually going to bring that up just because you know? he looks just so different in Iron Man that um, that I mean, at the time I watched that, I of course hadn't seen The Big Lebowski. I I didn't know much of it, so of course the dude was the farthest thing from my head. But I I wonder how many people actually do think watch iron man and and still see the dude under that beard and bald head yeah i kind of did and and you know in the, the first his first few scenes in that film he's very like hey let me throw an arm around you and 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 talk to you know like he's very warm and chatty and i'm kind of like hey, he's he's still the dude <laughs> you know <laughs> so you know, right. and that'll totally be when when the day comes and he passes on. That'll be the, like the first thing in his obituary was <laughs> played the dude. <laughs> so, yeah. all right. Well, um, before we finish up here, I I did want to mention the the big um, the gutter ball sequence, the the dream sequence, the drug trip sequence, whatever you want to call it, in the middle of the movie. That oh. where the I mean the film's pretty bizarre. In general, but that's the point where it just kind of goes completely bonkers for about five minutes. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and I think it's the type of thing where certainly the first couple times I saw it, I was a little kind of befuddled, like, all right, this is a random, you know, offshoot. But then kind of reading, you know, I learned a little bit more about the movie and stuff and knowing that it's really um, – how much of the films, like the, the plot line and such, is is based off of those old Raymond Chandler? That was the name I was blinking out on. These like old, like you know, those fit nineteen fifties Raymond Chandler kind of noir. Maybe they're even older than that. Uh, noir stories. Um, yeah, inevitably somebody gets like drugged. <laughs> you know, like the, the the detective gets drugged and mm. and has this weird kind of trippy moment of uh, what he's kind of barely conscious so um yeah gutter balls is pretty i think there's are there two ver are there two sequences or am i just kind of mixing things up uh i i think there's like just really brief ones like yeah there you've got the the woman like flying through the air topless which i i can't remember if it shows up before or after we actually see it whenever he goes to the uh um the the porn producer's mansion Oh, that's that's the introduction to him showing. I think that's actually just taking place on the beach. But uh, it, it, but it, it does yeah. one other time, like by itself, where you see another woman just flying through the air like that. But I don't remember if it was in a in a similar like blackout scene or if it was just randomly on a scene transition. Yeah, I can't remember now. I just uh, you know I just remember him flying around through gutter balls and then the guy <laughs> with the scissors chasing him. <laughs> yeah, and he uh, he floats down the lane between all the women's legs and it's like he 
turns around, so he's looking up their skirts, and he has just this huge, wide-eyed grin <laughs> on his face before floating and turning back around. But yeah, that that's such a bizarre moment, and 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 one one other just real quick last thing that I wanted to mention, like you said that that uh, the dude is like the main character, and he is actually in every scene in this movie because he is um, the central character, and he's like the point of reference for the audience. And that's interesting. Even um, which I I didn't realize this watching it, but I read it afterwards in the trivia. There's there's really only one scene where he's not like the main focus during part of that, and that's whenever we see the Germans at the diner, and you get to see that uh, that the one woman is missing her toe, and uh, you do actually see the uh, um, the uh, Walter security van drive by in the background. I never, I never caught the security van. Crazy, yeah. It's, I think it's, I think it's really all about kind of the dude. Um, just to kind of follow up on that, and I think a key to the success of of him in that role is he seems like he's a very, even though you can't point to anyone that he's like, he's a very familiar character without being a stereotype. You know what I mean, like. Mm-hmm. He's kind of too old to be like the like kind a of surfer slackers dude. or a surfer dude, you know, and he's too young to be like a hippie. Uh, you know, he's too – he's actually pretty sharp. You kind of near the end. You kind of realize like, no, he kind of knows what's going on. And But so he's too sharp – just kind of too too sharp to be like a, just a flat-out stoner, but he's also really, really lazy. <laughs> he <just> kinda, <laughs> and he kind of feels like – like everybody like somebody that everyone knows you know um in a way like oh you know as opposed to a a fictional character that you could point at and say like oh he's just like that guy it's uh but with like you know a beard or with a sweater or what you know it's more like oh he's like my buddy carl or whatever so um uh last thing i want to throw in i would be remiss if i if i didn't mention that uh, among the, the stellar cast is the late philip seymour hoffman yeah, and um, in my one of my favorite roles that he ever did, it's it's very small and it's not very demanding, <laughs> but <laughs> he's just the um the very fastidious and kind of ner- uh assistant to the the big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of shows uh, the dude around and shows off the various. You know, uh, plaques on the wall and photos and like the photo taken with Mrs. That the the big Lebowski had taken with Mrs. Reagan when she was first lady <laughs> of the nation. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I also I like just the really quick moments, which I'm sure like some people might not catch, but um, whenever the dude's uh, meeting Bunny for the first time and, and she makes him uh, the offer, and then at the end she says, uh, and. Uh, and um, he right can't, can't, watch, right can't watch unless he pays a, pays me a hundred dollars, <laughs> which implies that that's something that he's done, but in the past. <laughs> no, this is. I feel like this is a film that definitely rewards multiple viewing because there's a lot of. I think we mentioned that earlier. There's a lot of very little moments that um that you don't catch. Right, you know, which, which like, is very typical of uh, Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. You know. So excellent. Are we are we ready to move on? Yeah, we are going to take a quick break, and then whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, Flash Gordon. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Listen to The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes, and you can hear me, Jason Soto, use the F word. French? No. Fudge? Eh, Sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? What? what? No. Farfid Nugan? Jeez, no. Alright, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about In the Layer of the Unwanted, covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. Flash Gordon came out in 1980, and fun fact, that was the year I was born, and uh, it was produced by Dino De, De Laurentiis, and it starred uh, newcomer Sam Jones, and it, it also had uh, some uh, more uh, 
more uh, well-known names, uh, especially now with uh, Max von Sydow playing the Ming the Merciless and Timothy Dalton playing Prince Baron, and uh, a small role from Richard O'Brien of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, or show fame and, and a few other people. And, and it tells the story of Flash Gordon, who is a football player who gets uh, thrown into this... Um, this other uh, galaxy that's a, a system of different moons that are all uh, fighting with each other, and they're all controlled by the, the Emperor Ming the Merciless. And uh, there's a lot of uh, sexual tension. It, it's, it really follows like the classic um, uh, format of the old serials um, back back when they they had the the short films. Um, and it's it came out a few years after Star Wars, but they used still the some of the more typical um, special effects at the time. So where even though it has a look of a very much a B movie, and uh, a lot of the acting is very over the top B movie acting, but at the same time <laughs> they can tell that they threw a lot of money at this movie. They just didn't spend it in the right way. So it's even though Star Wars holds up as a great movie, this one not so much. But I think the thing that saves it is it has a soundtrack by Queen. Yeah, and you know it's funny because that's the thing I always I had always known about the film. It was almost like Flash Gordon starring the music of Queen. And uh, just because you hit on a, a lot of a lot of stuff there, um, Dino De how do you pronounce his last name? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis. I always see him just from the the films I've experienced by him is like trying to be like the modern day C.C. Deville, <laughs> like really big, over the top, expansive. Now, granted, my the films of his that I've seen that I'm most familiar with are like it's. Uh, you know, the 70s version of King Kong and uh, Dune. <laughs> so like these big hauling over the top, just all over the place, the epic kind of films. And this definitely had that, that kind of feel. Um, certainly this film is known for being incredibly cheesy. Uh, it's also a load of fun. Um, yeah, this is like the – I think just about the only film that Sam Jones starred in, and, and it's uh, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he starred in this, and then he starred – well, he didn't star, but he was in uh, uh, the movie Ted recently, which uh, – did you catch Ted? No, I'm I'm one of the few people, I think, on the planet that I'm just <laughs> not a fan of the family guy. Like I, I've tried – I've seen like a half dozen episodes. I've tried, and I just don't. Get, like I don't get it. I don't find it funny. So yeah, well, Ted, well, the, you know, I'm kind of curious about Ted. Yeah, but it, it, I'm also leery because I'm like, well, if I don't really like the guy's show, like you know that he's really known for, am I going to really care for this film? But yeah, it, it does have a lot of the a lot of similar humor. But one one thing that it does have is quite a few Flash Gordon references in it, like major Flash Gordon references to the point that uh, Sam Jones, like the actor. Uh, kind of playing himself uh, as a uh, uh, minor role in the movie. Awesome. And I think it's kind of it's funny because I, I didn't know that connection, but I had watched Flash Gordon for the first time just a couple months before I watched Ted. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that nice timing there then, yeah. Yeah. So I I was – all those references were very fresh for me, and it, it was – it. Uh, made the movie a little bit more enjoyable, but uh, I am one of those that's, that's a fan of Seth MacFarlane's um, Family Guy. But going back to this movie, uh, it's, it does have like a very um, episodic plot to it. It's, it. It starts out on Earth, and uh, Ming the Merciless is just basically toying with Earth with this weather machine. He's sending down hot hail, which <laughs> cracked me up. Yeah, that, that's that's something that I always rem remember from that beginning too is the hot hail, and uh, he gets in a uh, crash lands this, this plane because he's he's taking flying lessons, but uh, it, they never got around to landing. Yep. 
And and I think it's funny watching it this time. But I, I don't know if I noticed it before, but uh, they run into this uh, scientist, this mad scientist who's building this rocket, and he's wanting to take this rocket to the source of the uh, disturbances so he can go on the offensive, and his assistant doesn't want anything to do with it. And I noticed this time that they, they like they run over the assistant, and I imagine that they kill him, <laughs> but it's not mentioned before or afterwards. Oh, I didn't catch that. I just I was too yeah. distracted by um this is uh the discredited mad scientist, Doctor Zarkov. Mm. He's got this kind of outrageous yet hard to pin down accent. <laughs> and at one point he, because he's he's the only one who believes that like where you know these weird weather th- conditions are are result of us of the planet being attacked by by something so he's built this rocket and he's going to fly out there and stop it and the, the, the as you mentioned the assistant doesn't want to go and so dr zarkov pulls a revolver on him and says get your toothbrush or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then as the the assistant's running away which um the assistant is i'm pretty sure he's played by the um the actor that played porkins in star wars I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was looking through IMDb through the cast list because uh, the uh, um, skipping ahead just a little bit, but uh, Ming's um, like number one, the guy with the metal mask. Yep. His voice sounded extremely familiar, and I was trying to figure out if I had heard his voice somewhere before. But uh, and while I was looking for him, because I couldn't think of what his name was, whenever I was looking. Um, up on IMDb, and I came across the um, the guy that played the assistant. And I saw that he played Porkins, and, and he also like going back through his earlier credits. He also played a character named Fatty. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. Uh, but he, like he's running away, and then right as the uh, Flash Gordon and Dale's uh, plane is crashing, and it's like he uh, he apparently ends up underneath the plane. Uh, from what I can tell, as far as the angles go, and then after that, he's never seen again. Nope, nope. And we just move right along. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's I um I didn't know anything much about the story other than like kind of some of the main character names and stuff. Uh, yeah, they end up going off to a distant moon or whatever, and the three of them, and um, where you find out, yeah, that there's all these kind of different factions that are kind of ill at ease with each other and they're all under the thumb of Ming the Merciless um but they all kind of hate him mm-hmm. um and it felt a little um I'm trying to put the it almost uh, in a weird way reminded me of uh the warriors cuz everyone every place had its own look you mm-hmm. had the hawkmen with their wings and and the guy who sounded like an over enunciated gimli from lord of the rings yeah that's and, uh, uh, that's brian blessed that, yeah. that's the actor's name and and he is by far my favorite part of the movie and he plays the the king of the hawkmen and just his booming voice just everything he says sounds important. Yeah, and he's always laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of like this kind of an interesting character. Um, uh, and then you had Timothy. Some of these people I had no idea were in the film. I was stunned when Timothy Dalton showed up. <laughs> yeah, um, and he plays a pretty uh, pretty big uh, important character in the movie too. Yeah, he's like from this like Robin Hood planet. Mm-hmm. They're all in green, you know. And then there's the ill fated uh, Egyptian types. Um, and then there's that sexy S&M princess. I didn't catch her name, but she was sexy. Yeah, um, and she's sleeping with everybody. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and it leads into one of the first big set pieces, which I'm sure you could find clips of on, on YouTube, where uh, – so the three – the three, uh, you know, uh, Flash and Dale, who we didn't mention is uh, this really cute uh, travel agent that he meets on his trip, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Zarkov. They go and they're like, hey, Ming, stop attacking Earth. And he's like, ah, the hell with you. Like, no, I'm going to do what I want. So um, Flash ends up picking a fight with them. But then he starts like they, they – but the guards all kind of beat him up a bunch. But well, somehow uh, he gets – Ming wants, Ming wants to, to, take Met, to take Dale for his concubine. Yes. Oh, yeah. What, what happened that. there? He like uses his ring. <laughs> to make her do a sexy <laughs> dance, make her start feeling up was on Was that herself. what that was supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. I, I – you know, she kind of does this like little goofy – 
how did I? I'm trying to find it in my notes. Uh, it's like this weird interpretive dance, <laughs> and like, but that that gets everyone. That puts a little lead in everyone's pencil, and everyone's all like, "Yeah, I can see why. The, maybe there's some value to Earth after all." And, <laughs> what the hell, you know? So yeah, from that point on, Ming wants wants to make Dale as a uh, concubine, and and Flash basically picks a fight with the entire room. But then, like, gets hold of some random orb and starts playing football yeah, against them. Yeah, it's like this, this one uh, group of the aliens have these, like, Fabergé eggs <laughs> that are about the shape of a football. And so Dr. Zarkov gets the idea to toss him one to, to put him into football mode because yeah. he's Flash Gordon of the New York Jets. Which, just the sight unseen, I would say is probably he would be one of the best quarterbacks that the Jets have had in the last <laughs> or so, anyway. But, you know. So, uh, yeah, he starts, you know, like, just plowing through him, and, like, the football music starts up, and Dale's cheering, and then uh, Zarkov tosses him another Fabergé egg when he's not looking in Cold Clock's flash. And, <laughs> and the end. Um, one of the things, just kind of, like, kind of leaping ahead, I loved about this film is it definitely has in a way that I've only seen, I think in like Raiders of the Lost Ark, it has that serial kind of feel where every 15 minutes or so, like up oh, and flash is going to get killed, you know? <laughs> and then like, surprise, he doesn't get killed because something happens and he's out of it. You know, it really does kind of, um, kind of go through those cycles as opposed to having this kind of more traditional over. I mean, there's certainly a, a big story, but, um, uh, yeah, so, like uh, Ming has him killed, has him executed, but uh, the uh, Ming's daughter, the uh, the sexy princess, uh, gets a crush on him and decides that she's going to save him. So she has the the doctor um, or the executor um, like has him with something. Yeah, yeah, he injects him with something that fakes his death, and then they pick him. She picks him up later, and. Like flirts with the doctor and then turns around and takes Flash to go see her other boyfriend, Prince Baron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I would actually say that if uh, you know, if if Flash Gordon had a superpower, he's just super lucky. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's at least, oh, I want to say there is at least four instances throughout the film where everyone thinks he's dead. <laughs> and then it's like, surprise, he's not, you know. Or thinks he's about to die. Yep, yep. So uh, that's that's good stuff. I really kind of enjoyed that. And there's something very, I don't know, I think of the overall effect is that there was this kind of very kind of innocence to the whole film. That it was so campy and it's so, you know, like not taking itself super seriously that I just kind mm -hmm. of I kind of really enjoyed I mean that that that's uh, that football fight is definitely a, a great example, and and another uh, thing that that I thought was really great, uh, going back earlier to the the scene that introduces Doctor Zarkov, like whenever they crash their plane through his window, he's like, "So I imagine you want to use my phone? Yeah. Well, my phone is <laughs> right over there, <laughs> just trying to get them into the rocket." And the, just his tone of voice is just so over the top, like completely obvious that he's leading them into a trap. Oh yeah, absolutely. But then there, there's other scenes like, um, and, and I mean, there, there is a few points where Flash does show some ingenuity, like uh, the scene um, later on with Prince Baron. They yep. set up this room that's this uh, initiation that's that the young men of the planet have to to go through to prove themselves as a man where there's it's like this rock formation and then inside there's this creature or a bunch of creatures whatever and um they stick their hand in it and if they end up touching one of the one of these creatures then it it stings them and then they go mad and uh usually instead of going mad they ask to be killed like they um to spare themselves the the madness sickness or whatever and then flash and prince baron go through this like uh back and forth where they each take turns sticking their hands in and then flash pretends that he gets sting gets stung and then turns it around to steal prince baron's sword 
Yeah, that was. I thought that was really good. That was some good stuff right there. And uh, I kind of like the idea of this kind of weird sci-fi version of Russian roulette, which is basically what they're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for for as much as like you know, Ming the Merciless is the one who's kind of like the known. Like I knew very little about Flash Gordon going in, but even I knew about Ming the Merciless, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really like Flash versus Timothy Dalton for most of the, most of the film. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's just a, f- a function of how uh, they're younger and they can physically fight more or I don't know what it is. But, you know, um, a lot of the film is is the two of them at each other's throats. And, um, you know, why not? Yeah, um, which which that was I think that was the other uh, really uh, enjoyable scene and like not even on a campy level. But I, I thought it was actually a well done scene that their fight on the uh, the rotating Oh, the tilt the world. Yeah, the, the <laughs> spike pit or spike platform with Brian Blessed, the the king of the Hawkman, with the the remote control. Yeah, he's like, bring me my remote control. <laughs> His accent in it was crazy. I like every time he talked, I was dying. He really sounded like it. It took me a long time to pin it down. He was like an he was like if Gimli over enunciated <laughs> everything he said, kind of thing. It was uh. That was pretty pretty awesome. Oh, oh, who who wants to live forever? Yeah, yep. Get that in there, and uh, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, meanwhile, Dale has a weird kind of storyline where she's. I I didn't know what to think of some of this, and I'm glad that it didn't get too creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's set up as a concubine. For yeah, and, and the slave girls bring in this this uh, substance, this drink, which doesn't just, have a name. Yeah, I just called it rapey juice. Cause I'm like, <laughs> all right, this is this they, is gonna get a out. little uncomfortable here. And yeah. then she basically roofies the slave girl. Yeah. Which, like, I don't know how I feel about that either, but you know, um, yeah, she drinks it herself and gets her and has a, a really nice little high. And they say it's like uh, it won't make you forget, but it'll make you not care that you remember. Right. So, yeah. uh, but Ming comes in and finds the discovers the ruse, and he's just like ah, he's just all mad. So um, goes off, and then Dale has her the sequence where she's trying to sneak out of there, where she suddenly becomes. Oh, keep in mind at this point she is cute travel agent kind of poly purebred type. <laughs> she's just there to like to be rescued. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very very old fashioned in that in that regard. And suddenly she's doing like these cartwheel kicks. <laughs> she's like kind of ninjaing around the place and like taking out guards and stuff. Yeah, the but, thing that the thing that I noticed this time watching it that I thought was funny is like she takes her shoes off. Like she she switches the, her clothes with the slave girl. So she's wearing the slave outfit with these like high heels and then she'll take her shoes off and then like fight these random guards that disintegrate whenever they use the the future weapons on them and then she'll go back and pick her shoes back up yeah yeah i did catch that too so (laughs) um if there's one thing that i was a little disappointed with and i don't know if we can you you care about spoiling the you know, 30 something year old movie. Uh, it was the ending, like the climax. Um, if we can do, we want to dive into yeah. that now. Sure. Okay. And I think part of it is the opening credits along with the, the, of naturally though, the queen music, um, they're showing all these kind of just quick kind of images and stuff from, from the old comic books. And, uh, and in that regard, I think we got to acknowledge that there's a lot of, I think whether they want to own up to it or not, a lot of today's modern um, superhero movies have a lot of their DNA goes back to this film. Like even just the Marvel and DC film production logos are kind of straight out of the opening credits of, of this film of, mm-hmm. you know, the way they were showing the old, you know, uh, you know, quick clips of quick clips of, you know, of all the old comic book you know, images but one of the ones they kind of focused on was Flash and Ming having a sword fight, <laughs> which I loved because, of course, you've got this, you know, if you're going to have this intergalactic epic battle of good and evil to save the planet and stuff, it's going to come down to two guys, you know, having a sword fight. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, but and instead, it, that, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Flash flies the rocket into, um, literally into the, into the palace, and and yeah, and, and um, 
Ming gets gets uh gets shish kebobbed by yeah. impaled with the antenna there, and I'm waiting for like I'm waiting for Ming to do the thing because we've seen it in like other movies where it's like I've been impaled, but I'm just gonna slide off it because I'm too bad and awesome to care. No, no, that actually does kill him. <laughs> so like I was waiting for this like big confrontation battle whatever. Uh, nope, nope, you know. So I was, uh, you know, I think I was just looking forward to a sword fight. Is really what it came down to, but yeah, but it, but of course, at at the end, um, at the very end, you see this random gloved hand pick up Ming's power ring, and it says uh, the end. Yes, the mark. question mark, <laughs> which I loved, and then was not at all surprised when I read that uh, a lot of the people who wrote this film also wrote the '60s Batman movie, mm. which is another superhero movie mm. I absolutely love and not ironically either i think that is a that is a fantastic film <laughs> so um not surprised that it's got a lot of the same people working on it yeah although i do think that that the uh the batman movie does play itself more like a comedy where this one it, it does have some comedic moments but at the same time it feels like it's trying to be a bit more serious than the batman oh definitely definitely agree on that but um yeah, <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. up. So. And, and the other thing that I, that I always thought was hilarious was uh, well, during the big happy ending. There's uh, the the Hawkman go up and they uh, they spell thanks, well, thanks Flash <laughs> in the sky. Oh, that was too much. Yeah, I um. Thank you for making me finally watch this. This was this actually this was one of my film wise for a while to be honest, um, because it so fits into the, the niche of the kind of films I, I normally watch. I just hadn't had a chance to kind of get around to it or a good excuse, and uh, this was that excuse. And I I found this that this is a load of fun. This is a, just a fun movie. So. Um, and yes, the music from you know from Queen is awesome. So uh, yeah, which uh, which of course I, I don't do this too often, but I I have to throw in just one flash. Ah. And, <laughs> so uh, because that is just such an iconic part of this movie. Like anytime, uh, like I'll I'll bring it up on Twitter every once in a while. Like anytime I see. Flash Gordon on Twitter, I get at least two or three replies that'll put, ah, savior <laughs> of the universe. Awesome. So yeah, that's, it, it is just a very fun, uh, cheesy B movie. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, I wouldn't even really call it a guilty pleasure because I do like it and I, I know what it is. And I think everybody that watches it knows what it is. It's it's not really a guilty pleasure. It's it's just a fun old cheesy movie. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, and it's definitely worth watching. And I, I think what would be really interesting um, is now that Max von Sydow is going to be in the new Star Wars Episode Seven. I think it would be awesome if they if there was some connection between his character and the new Star Wars movie to him being Ming the Merciless. I'm not holding my breath, but you never <laughs> know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd like to thank you for. Uh, um, talking with me today about about these movies, it, it was a, a fun episode. Oh, absolutely! Thank you for having me on. All right, and uh, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Well, you can always find me at Your Face, which you can find at www.yourfacesa.com. All right, and as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can listen to FilmWise on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and or you can find it on Podomatic, uh, where you can get the RSS feed to listen to however, pretty much however you listen to. And if you want to know what two movies we'll be talking about on the uh, next episode in two weeks, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I'm dying. Aren't you? Welcome to the new world. What are you going to do now? I'm running out of time. Did you ever think that it would end like this? Well, that's a little hard to say. My last adventure is about to begin. I want you all to be quiet. Thank you.